So our today's topic is strategies and workarounds for when a waiver is not available. We will also do a quick refresher on how to reset and position yourself to get a waiver next year. It is most advisable to consult with an experienced physician immigration attorney for an immigration checkup while you're doing your job search, while you're exploring your options. And we certainly hope that we will be the people to make a difference in your life. A little bit about me, I've practiced immigration law in Washington, D.C. for over 40 years. I know I can't look like I have, I just started young. Uh, I, along with a colleague, Mike Mazio, uh, established, worked with the government to establish the first waiver program in about 1989. It was the Appalachian Regional Commission. At that time, the only other agency which had issued waivers was the VA. So the ARC program is, are the real pioneers here. Then came the USDA. Uh, it went out of business, not the USDA, but their waiver program uh, right after 9-11. And then we had a HUD program for a couple of years. That too met a sad death after 9-11. Then came all the programs that you all may be familiar with, the Conrad State 30 program, and then HHS, that's Health and Human Services, and the DRA. And here we are today. I encourage all of your questions. If you want to make them anonymous, that's fine. You can be anonymous. We're here and happy to answer all questions. Or if you wish to make a personal consultation appointment, just contact Corey at our office. We'll put up his email at the end. So now we begin to discuss strategies. Okay, I think a lot of you think that there's no hope left as you didn't get a waiver that you wanted or have not yet found a waiver job. Next slide. There's good news. The good news is that many waivers, waiver programs have waiver slots available year round and are unlimited in number. So if you remember nothing else, remember that. Now, which are the federal waiver programs? There's the, as I just mentioned, the grand mother of all waiver programs, the Appalachian Regional Commission. It, it, it will grant waivers in all medical specialties within the Appalachian region. So it's a geographical waiver program. So the good news is a couple of years ago, just a couple of years ago, they added subspecialists. However, note that they will do HIPSA areas only. What that means is we have two baskets in our hands. We have one, two kinds of medically underserved areas, HIPSA areas and medically underserved areas. So how do you know which is which? How you know which is which is you go to the website where hipsafind.gov, um, we have, we'll put that in the chat room, hipsafind by address, sorry, hipsafind by address, and then you put in the address of your proposed work locations, and it will tell you whether it's in the HIPSA basket, the MUA basket, 
or better yet, both. Then there's the Delta Regional Authority, which also is a geographic-based waiver program and it operates in the states in the Delta region. And to find out which areas are qualified for both ARC and the Delta Regional Authority, you can go to the websites listed on the PowerPoint. ARC is arc.gov. Delta Regional Authority is dra.gov. Now the Delta Regional Authority will do all medical specialties and they will do both baskets, HIPSAs and MUAs. So as long as it shows up on your Google of HIPSAfine by address and it's in the Delta region, you're in business. The other federal waiver agency, which has been the, the, our hero the last three years. Uh, thank you, Mike Berry. If you're on the website, Mike Berry is the head of the waiver program at HHS. In uh, the spring of 2020, um, they expanded the areas for which they will sponsor waivers to the entire nation. The requirement is that it, your, your location, your proposed work location must have a HIPSA shortage score of seven or greater. We should probably put up a slide for that. But uh, so again, HIPSA bind by address, and it will tell you not only whether it is in the HIPSA basket, MUA basket, or both. And if it's a HIPSA, it will tell you the shortage score. Now, when you're doing your diligent Google search and you get to the, you type in the address of your proposed work location, please note that when it's talking about your area being a HIPSA, it will say primary care HIPSA. Do not do anything drastic, like jump off the Brooklyn Bridge or buy a plane ticket home when you say, oh my God, I'm a subspecialist and it's not listed here. Okay, so let's get rid of that myth. It, that designation is used for all medical specialties, primary care and subspecialists. The second requirement of HHS, which we don't like, and we've been trying to persuade them to change it for years, is that they will only, only sponsor waivers for primary care. And for those of you who need a refresher, it's OBGYN, internal medicine, family medicine, psychiatry, and pediatrics. That's it. Now, what happens if you did a primary care and residency in family medicine, you couldn't find a waiver job, and you decide to do a one-year residency, uh, sorry, one-year fellowship in pediatrics. You say, oh, I'm out of the loop because I'm doing a fellowship in pediatrics. Not necessarily. Um, as long as you report to work no longer than 365 days after you finished your family practice residency, you can still have a waiver. There are several caveats to that, so please check with us about um, the timing of that. And then the Veterans Administration. Okay, they actually have been in the waiver business the longest since 1972. Um, they have developed and established internal 
J-1 waiver processing rules, which make them very unattractive to physicians who are working on deadlines. Um, their waivers are generally slow and they have many extra layers of bureaucracy and they don't let your lawyer represent them, but technically you can hire your own lawyer and we work with them to speed them along. So it's good to plan on six, seven, eight months for a VA waiver if you decide to go that way. Now, many VA hospitals have affiliations with academic medical centers, which makes it attractive to a lot of J-1 physicians. And you can do a joint appointment with the VA and the university, and the VA appointment has to be five aids time at minimum. So those are our federal waivers. Again, HHS wins. They also process waivers in a week or two, so we really love them. All right. Now, more breaking news. You may be the first ones to hear this. It came out yesterday afternoon. USCIS, it appears to be eminently implementing premium processing for most I-765 EAD work permits. How is that relevant to you? Well, if you have a spouse who's a J-2, I would strongly encourage you to get your spouse a work permit, whether or not they are going to use it. And if you're an H-1 and your spouse is an H-4 and wants an H-4 work permit, this will be happening shortly. I can't tell you what shortly is. It looks like USCIS put out a notice yesterday that they were going to add many, many applications to premium processing, including all of your change of statuses, for example, from F1 to J1, from J1 to, uh, not from F1 to J1, B2 to J1. So historically, those applications have been taking a long and unpredictable period of time and caused the physicians starting their programs uh, great agony, pain, and suffering about whether they were going to be able to start their program on time. So the other part, um, watch our website for breaking news on when they actually announce that it's going to happen. Originally, they said it was unlikely to happen before October of 2025. So this is big news for your age four spouses. Okay, now I'm gonna just do a tiny bit of our alphabet soup here and please put in the chat room uh, if you have questions about them. So we've already done the Appalachian Regional Commission, open year round, unlimited in number, all medical specialties. DRA, open year round, unlimited in number, all medical specialties. They do charge $3,000. Uh, HHS, open year round, primary care only, HIPS a score of seven. Then the other waivers uh, that do not involve employment sponsorship, all of the interested government agency waivers require employer sponsorship and a three-year contract. Hardship waivers are waiver applications where the requirements are met. You can apply for a hardship waiver at any, any time during your training. 
Okay, so with the hardship waiver, you have to have a qualifying anchor relative. And that anchor relative must be a United States citizen or a permanent resident spouse or minor child. And you must show two exceptional hardships, hardships if the qualifying relative goes home with the J-1 and extreme hardship if they remain in the United States without them. They're a great way to go if you have proper timing. Um, in the wake of COVID, uh, the waivers have increased in processing time from something like 12 to 14 months. Uh, the important thing to note with both hardship and persecution waivers is that if you're going to have an H-1B or any other non-immigrant visa as a bridging, to bridge a gap between the time you get a work permit through your green card application, you must leave the United States to get a visa. Please note that a persecution waivers, anyone can apply anytime during residency. You need not have an anchor relative. So that's a really good thing. Again, that's increased in processing time, maybe 10 to 12 months. And you have no right, they don't give you the right to remain in the United States just because they're really, really slow at processing them right now. They have gone from, for example, three or four years ago, taking four to six months to 12 to 14. The other thing is that you are not penalized by ECFMG for filing a hardship or persecution waiver. However, if the waiver is granted, you may finish the year of the program you're currently on when the, when the waiver is approved, but they will not give you additional program time in your residency or fellowship if it's approved. However, they will extend your DS 2019 J1 time to take board exams, even if you have a hardship or persecution or any other kind of waiver. The other good news, well, good and bad news, is that if your waiver application is pending or denied, any of the waivers, both interested government agency, hardship and persecution, then you can continue in your program. So pending or denial, you get to continue. So the timing issues on the persecution and hardship waiver are extremely important as you may find that your program is not all that happy that you go and ask them to do an H1 for you and because you have a waiver in the middle of a program. So that's about that. Okay, update on the current state of affairs. Uh, here's just some of them. Uh, Georgia always fills up and they've received 30 waivers, Texas, received 30 waivers. They're only open for from September 6th to September 20th. So those of you who missed out this year may be eligible for next year. Texas program has be, used to be just about the best program in America. It has become very restrictive in the waivers that it will approve. Um, probably if you're not primary care, your chances of getting a waiver there are diminished. Do not begin a waiver there without getting explicit permission from the Texas Department of Health that you are in fact eligible for the waiver. So the two lists I was referring to that you Google 
it the, to get a Texas waiver, it has to be on the list. And if it's an MUA, it probably won't make the cut. That's the federally designated list. And Texas takes that list and cuts it down some more. So don't make the mistake of thinking you can get a subspecialty waiver in Texas. Indiana received 40 waivers this year and they opened September 1st. I've got your Maryland dates there, Kentucky dates, Illinois dates, California as of two days ago had six slots left that can be used for subspecialists. So note that most waiver application periods be, begin on October 1st. Some of them have application periods that's between October 1st and October 31st, like Kentucky, for example. And please note that during the application period states, your application will receive the same consideration whether it's received on the 1st or the 31st. So don't rush into any decisions based on thinking you have an advantage in a, an application period state. Then there's the rolling application states where it's more or less first come first serve and they adjudicate them as they get them. So early time in getting there first is important in those states. Um, then you have uh, the different application cycles where they will consider primary care during the first period and have another period for subspecialists. So be aware of how the cycle looks and keep in touch about those cycles. Um, now, one thing that is also very good news is that since HHS expanded na to nationwide to any employer where the work location will be in a HIPSA with a shortage score of seven, they have started receiving hundreds and hundreds of waiver applications. And that is because they included hospitalists. Remember this, hospitalists go under HHS if they have a HIPSA score of seven or greater. So um, that has taken the pressure off the state 30 programs. And in fact, some states require you to go through HHS or another waiver program if eligible to save their state 30 slots for basically subspecialists and anybody else who doesn't qualify for one of the federal programs. So remember that we're trying to convince all the states to require going to a federal program if eligible to save the rest of the slots for subspecialists. Okay, more alphabet. I can't see the top. Okay, um, where do you wanna look for your job? All right, we're going to look for our job. Where to begin your frantic search? Uh, can we see by a show of your electronic hands how many of you are still looking for a waiver to start work? In other words, you finished your training as of June 30th. Raise your electronic hand so I know how much time. Okay, I only see two people, three people. That's six Seven, okay, seven of you. All right, so we'll go into that. So now you need to go to what you refer to as plan B. I think the most common one is you apply in New York and don't get a New York waiver. New York waivers always fill up. 
for the 30 slots, they generally get between 60 and 70. Set 60 and 70, 60 and 70 waivers. And it's hard to tell whether you're gonna get a waiver. Uh, and the people that didn't win there, and then you didn't find out until April, well, then you have to go to plan B. Where, what are we doing in plan B? Okay, post your resumes on 3rnet.org, the first one there, most jobs, and there are also many jobs posted there, look there. Ask your physician immigration lawyer. We often know about jobs. Uh, our, our employer clients tell us what they need. I frequently ask them, Who are, you, are you looking for anybody? If a client calls me and says, a physician calls and said, I'm looking for a waiver job. And a matter of fact, I think I just posted eight or nine positions with an employer yesterday, a very good employer on the J1 Physician Facebook page. And if you all aren't members of that, please join. It's a great site for everything from waiver jobs to insurance, to driver's license, to all kinds of interesting things. Then the next one is we have the, the website to determine whether an area is underserved. And if you're a primary care physician, uh, you might wanna look for a federally qualified health center, FQHC because obviously their HHS waivers open year round and they're always looking for positions. But before you, 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 know, you get into the panic mode, make sure you're cut out for an FQHC. It's a very different kind of work environment than, it, than an academic university environment. Make sure you're gonna make it for three years. Call recruiters and then they'll call you. A note about recruiters, um, some are a bit knowledgeable about J-1 law, position law, others are not. Many of you will likely know more about the waiver landscape than your recruiter. Um, if you ask us, we'll send you a book we made for employers and recruiters. Uh, you will likely be educating them. And in the, you know, the real world reality is obviously the recruiter gets paid when they make a placement. And uh, what, you know, when they make a placement and if they don't make a placement, they don't get paid. So if an employer says, I really don't, to the recruiter, I don't really wanna deal with a, with a J-1 waiver. I had a bad experience 15 years ago. Well, we're here to, you know, make the employer's job easier. Our firm offloads everything we can from the employer to us. Now, another thing you want to take a look at are flex waivers. Flex waivers are waivers which only the state 30 can issue, not the federal programs. And a flex slot is where the job is not located in a medically underserved area but you will be treating patients who reside in medically underserved areas. So the states have total and complete discretion on this. States which don't use up their waivers are much more likely to give you a flex waiver. Uh, some of those states are our own very own District of Columbia, New Jersey, uh, Nebraska. So wherever they don't use up their numbers are much more willing to do flex slots and of course many universities are flex slots because they're not um, 
they're not medically they're not medically underserved because there's so many doctors there. So states often accommodate their own universities by allocating a certain number and saving them out of the 30. So there's the states that don't use up their numbers who are willing to use them for flex. And then there's a state that do use up their numbers, but set aside some of the flex waivers for uh, its universities. And a caveat on university promises to get you a waiver. Uh, I'm hearing now, I think I've had five calls this week from physicians who said, uh, I wanna be at this wonderful academic medical center forever and ever. They don't have any waiver slots this year. They promised to get me one next year and they want me to go on an O-1 visa. That's one of our options, but beware the infinite bridge of an O-1 visa. It's human nature. There's nothing evil about the employer. They just have a limited number of slots allocated to them and they rank their order. The, the states usually say, we're gonna give you two or what, let's say two. So give us your two applicants and there, there might be 20 doctors in the who've been promised waiver applications. So be careful with that. Okay, now to the, to the exam. Okay, when you've done all these backup plans and they don't work, what do you do? Option when it looks like no waivers are available this year for you. There are many, many waivers available and many, many waiver jobs. The question is whether you wanna go to such waiver jobs or whether you want to wait and see what happens next year or the year after. Okay, the big bonanza are, is the Canadian citizen bonanza. Note that the employer must be H-1B cap exempt in order for you to work. So Canadian citizens can work forever in the United States on an H-1B visa without a waiver, as long as the employer is cap exempt. And uh, we've gone into our other seminars on that, basically any university, medical school, uh, any community hospital, any nonprofit entity that has an affiliation agreement with a university. Cannot be a for-profit university. Then there's the O-1. O-1s are big this time of year. Are we happy to do them for you? Yes, but you get to have a free lecture from me that I've seen way too many instances, particularly at universities where you will be on an and one for a very long time. And we even have states who have told me unofficially that they're not going to waste their waivers on someone with an O-1 because they're there in the state working. Right, so they say you're here working and not being evil, they just say that's a reality. We need you know, to use our waiver for other people who may not qualify for O-1s. The other thing we call, so we call it the infinite bridge to nowhere very often. And I think our record is um, 13 years we had a doctor on an O-1 and there was a combination between the university not pursuing the waiver and the state saying, we're not gonna waste the waiver on her. And finally, with a lot of political pressure, they, after 13 years, they wasted an o and a waiver on her. Then the other thing is, the other option is a physician national interest petition. It's not the national interest showing exception of ability. It's a petition, your self petition to USCIS 
saying that you promised to work a total of five years in medically underserved area or areas, and you can file that before you get your waiver, during your waiver, after your waiver. So you can file that even before you go to work. That is an option, it's still an option, although work permits are taking you know, six, seven months, even with expedites right now, but earlier in the year, um, we usually try to file those between February and March, so there's a good chance they'll have a work permit by the July if they didn't get a waiver. This option is not available if you were born in India or China. Okay, you can file the I-140 PNIW, and that's fine, you can, you have your, it, there's an advantage to it because you have your place in the green card line as early as possible, but you cannot file the 485 and get the work permit. So of course we've discussed persecution waivers, hardship waivers, political asylum, those of you from Syria, uh, Ukraine of course, Venezuela wanna consider that. Uh, depends on where you are in your training, but you should know that it's absolutely amazing that when you get political asylum, included in the grant of asylum is a waiver, so it's all balled into one, and you get your green cards four years after you get asylum, rather than the usual five, unless you're married to an American. So we've got TPS for Venezuela, Ukraine, and many other countries that would also include, we have a lot of doctors from the Sudan. Um, and just Google TPS and they will list all the countries and all the requirements for the countries. So that's a good option. And I should note that you may have TPS and be continue and continue to be sponsored by ECFMG in J1 status. A lot of doctors like to have that. Having said that this wonderful remedy of TPS is available, um, the work permits are taking way too long. So hopefully this is going to change when the whisper, the rumor that started yesterday comes to fruition. Um, and it's a good option. It does not lead you to a green card. You must get a green card through a separate path. And if you will qualify for TPS, you likely might apply for asylum. So TPS doesn't give you a waiver. It doesn't give you a pathway to a green card. It lets you stay here and work as long as TPS is in effect. Now they generally grant TPS for 18 months at a time. Don't be worried about that. Look at El Salvador. I think it's had TPS since the 1980s. So it's very often extended. There is a political element involved. Okay, other options, J2 visa with an EAD, you mostly know about that. And then if your J1 spouse is in J1 status, you can flip to the J2 and get an EAD. Generally, you want to have to leave the country and get the J2 visa stamp when you're flipping from J1 to J2 or vice versa, you have to leave the country and get that done. Uh, you can also get a work permit. Now, having said how long it takes to get work permits right now, uh, the J2 work permit seemed to be coming in two or three months for some reason. Uh, if you're really desperate, need to be here to keep your name before possible employers, you can have an, you can, you're eligible for an F-1 visa. Uh, please contact an experienced lawyer before you go and apply for an immigrant visa, uh, sorry, an F-1 visa. 
There's usually no work on an F-1 visa, but it's possible in what we call day one OPT graduate programs. That means you're allowed to work under curricular, I shouldn't say OPT, curricular practical training. You might want to, we've had several clients obtain related degrees, such as Master of Science in Surgical Man Management. A client told me about that. Okay, you're eligible for all non-immigrant visas except HL and green card. Okay, if you have to wait till next year, we've gone through the rolling application periods, first come, first serve. Um, I got a call today from somebody who wants to do Washington State has a leftover waiver. You want to check on leftover waivers if, depending on the state. Uh, timing plus priority for primary care. The states where flex slots are not available. Texas, Arizona, Missouri, and Indiana. Always beware of the program's recruitment requirements for American physicians. Some have six months, some have a year, some have 45 days. Now, my favorite states for waivers are Delaware and South Carolina. They are my favorite because they give you certainty and your employer certainty that you're going to show up. So what happens in those states is the employers ask the state 30 program to reserve a slot, let's say for a neurologist. The state vets the employer and says, okay, you're approved for a neurologist. So that employer then has five, six months, depends on the state, a lot of time to recruit, and you have time to decide. You don't have to sign immediately. So the re, the re, we encourage other states to adopt that model. There are other states who also have um, waiting lists of sorts. North Carolina has waiting lists. Um, North Carolina is the main one I know about the waiting lists, but there several states have that. So just states you know have waivers year round are, um, you know, Montana, Nebraska, Guam, Puerto Rico, the Northern Mariana Islands, um, Washington, D.C., all come down here and work. We, we don't have enough doctors. We never come close to using 30 waivers and only a couple employers leave that. Okay. Uh, just non-compete clauses, uh, you can read from the slide, you'll all get a copy. With that, I'm concluding we have a ton of questions here, so let's get to it. If you all can stay over, we're willing, I'll try to talk fast. Question? Hi, Sheila Han, how are you? Haven't seen you forever. Okay. Is the ARC or DRA for subspecialties as well? Yes, both will do subspecialties. Caveat in the ARC is very, very paperwork heavy and will take quite a long time, but we muddle through. And they also add requirements after the application is approved. Uh, I'm sorry, after the application is pending that aren't published. So it gets frustrating, but it generally works. The other caveat to the ARC is relying on your HIPSA list uh, is not enough. Um, 
last year, no, the year before last, they decided they would have a rule. I mean, these agencies can just make up rules without asking for our comments. Uh, so you can be all happy. You say they need uh, three, you know, four neurologists at a hospital that doesn't have any in Virginia. Uh, the ARC will go to their list and say, I determined that there is a shortage of six physicians, not neurologists, but physicians, and that I've put four physicians there, and I think that's enough, so you can't have any until somebody leaves. So you want to, we'd be happy to help you again. So you really want to talk to us about the ins and outs of the ARC waiver, and you don't want to be surprised by, at the end, I know a couple doctors this year were surprised that, you know, their employer and their lawyer did not know that the ARC keeps its own separate list, uh, possibly, uh, yeah, I would say secret list. We would encourage them to publish the, the areas they deem filled, even though the HHS shortage list shows that they have a shortage. And remember, the shortage is for all physicians, not just your specialty. Next. Can you have a link to the breaking news you just mentioned? No, you cannot have it yet because it's on part of the USCIS website, but it's going to be published on their website. We think shortly all the lawyers are burning up the listservs trying to figure out when it's going to happen. But we will publish it on our firm uh, breaking news list. Next question, excellent question. How do you know how many slots are still open in any state? Great question. Some of the states are kind enough to publish them. Our organization is trying to get all of them to publish it and to update them. So if they don't publish them, I would call the state health department. Anyway, we have a list on our website of the contacts of each state department of health. For example, the best example, we've been working with the California Department of Health to make their program more usable and more able to attract subspecialty positions. So, so far, we got one request to publish the numbers received. However, that was last updated on June 14th. And this is helpful to absolutely no one. So I got in touch with them by phone on July 12th. I said, could you update your website? It may be updated today. And actually tell us how many slots are really available since it's nearly a month later. So the best way is to call and to make sure you understand what they tell you. For example, don't be deterred if you're a subspecialist by the fact that a state uh, health, state 30 representative tells you they always give preference to primary care, and that's on their website, and they do. But over the past few years, particularly since HHS has taken responsibility for doing hospitalists uh, in most places, um, there are more, more, there is more demand in most states for subspecialists than for primary care. So it's not that they don't give priority to primary care, it's that the number of subspecialist applications far outnumbers the primary care in many states. Next question. No, you you asked it. Next question. When you say they have already received waiver, it means that they already have applications, even though they have not yet opened. 
it depends on the state. The states that have an application period generally open them at the end. So they will say how many they have and they will decide. Um, the rolling states will, I, I agree, the rolling period states do first come, first serve. And some of the states will say we received, and well, obviously what we want to know is how many they've approved and how many are pending, and we're working on that. So again, when you talk to the states, don't be content with the answer, we've received 40, and say, okay, how many are how many are primary care, how many subspecialists, how many flex, and find out their websites usually say how many slots they reserve for flex. It may not be all 10, it varies a lot. So the state people are by and large super helpful. Let me know if they are, and we'll talk to them. Uh, but I find that they're super helpful and love to be helpful and bringing you all to their states is a matter of pride and they're very proud of their programs and they want their waivers to fill up. Thank you for that question. I agree that's received and approved and pending are often not specified. So if, you're, if the person who asked that question could ask me if they have a personal state in mind, I'll be happy to answer. Next question. Uh, can we apply for federal and state waiver at the time? Great question. If they're interested government agency waivers, that means either a state 30 or a federal waiver such as HHS, VA, DRA, or ARC, you may have only one waiver pending at the time. Great question and people ask a lot. Um, you have to actually withdraw from one state for going for another. So, or showing a denial would be good enough, I would think. All right, so however, the bonus is you can have a hardship waiver, persecution waiver, and a federal or state interested government agency waiver pending all at the same time. With the caveat that you're stuck with the waiver that the State Department grants first. We can usually work on controlling the timing on those to an extent. Um, and that there is a way to do that. For example, if you prefer your hardship waiver and we're pretty sure you're gonna get it, then we might take steps to slow down your uh, state 30 waiver if that's what you want. Great question, next. What about waivers for pathologists? There must be some incredible rumors going around out there. I get this question a lot. Yes, 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 you can do pathologists because you're on the front lines of fighting disease and death. Without a pathologist, the other doctors won't know what's wrong with the patient perhaps, and they will die for a minute because of a misdiagnosis. Next, for Canadian citizens, uh, if I go back to Canada and come to the US for two weeks, will I need two years and two weeks to pass to get rid of the two-year requirement? Technically, yes, but probably not. The other thing I would like to share with everyone is there is one other way to fulfill the waiver. Of course, I didn't mention the obvious one, go home for two years, because that's not why you're at the seminar, right? All right. So Canadian citizens have another option besides being able to work here without a waiver if they're working for a cap-exempt employer, and that's called our sleeping in Canada rule. Listen up carefully. Uh, we do... Probably we've done 
maybe not more than two a year, but if it works for you, as long as you sleep in Canada and the only thing you do in the U.S. is work, then you can fulfill your two-year requirement by working in the U.S. under an H-1 generally and sleeping in Canada. Now, don't just willy-nilly go do that. You need some serious advice on that because you have to have all your ties in Canada except your work. So that means, you know, your health insurance, your uh, kids in school, if you have kids, uh, your home, I mean, your um, OHIP, uh, you know, everything in Canada except your, except your work. And, and keep very, very close records. So if anybody needs to consult on that and has an option, obviously the places where we place those doctors are Detroit and um, Buffalo. The most practical border crossings are clearly other ones, but those are the ones that generally hire J-1 physicians. Next. Can you apply to states that have leftover spots from this year as a next year spot? Yes, it has to be done quickly, 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 because the State Department has a cutoff date for receiving waiver applications from the states of September 15th. Now, it could get a little dicey, but it hasn't yet. In other words, is somebody going to say, we got a waiver in? By now, if you apply right now, you're probably not going to actually get your waiver till November, December anyway. Um, so there is another world that causes consternation from time to time. Is that you all have to agree to start or agree to start work within 90 days of the approval of your waiver. We dispute this. We say what the law really says is that you have to agree. Doesn't mean you have to start work. What if you're ineligible for work? Like you don't have a license, like you don't have hospital privileges, like you haven't finished your training. So. I know that uh, Washington State gave out waivers early this year, leftovers. So it's certainly worth a try. You're not going to be disqualified for next year if you do it. And they say, come later. Okay, next question. We're running a little over. No, we're not. I'm an infectious disease subspecialist. I complete fellowship in June 2023, looking to start in July. Uh, Rest of the question, please. I am interested in an ID specialty waiver in an academic university position. I have still not found a suitable waiver job and signed a contract. You still have a little, how do I identify states that are favorable locations for me to look? I always tell people to first tell me where they want to live. Where would you like to live in America if you could live anywhere? And we start there and we work back from there. Um, so word of mouth is one, uh, is probably the best one for academic slots if it's not your own institution. Um, I personally right now don't know where the ID specialty jobs is, but University of Oklahoma is good. Uh, of course, I would try all the VA hospitals and even if that's gonna take a long time. If you started now, you may be finished. Another caveat is if you're eligible for a J-1 extension to take the board exam, do it. Do it now, even if it looks like you'll have your waiver and your age by March 1st, 2023. You never know what glitches come along. You know, something like COVID slowed everything down. I think you all have heard horror stories about that. 
but I think you'll find one. Uh, I would suggest that those of you with a, a passion for an academic job spread your wings more widely. There are very rewarding jobs in non-academic centers. And as you'll find, many non-academic centers actually have stronger and stronger affiliations with academic, with universities in that they send residents around. So don't just fixate on that or you may not find your job in time, but it can possibly give you some ideas. And obviously look in your professional journals, put your resume on 3rnet.org. And all the other, by the way, all the other places I hear very good things about Doc Cafe, uh, generally good things about practice link, practice match. But Doc Cafe is really interested in helping J1 physicians. Okay, next question. We still got many to go. Uh, which states favor specialists? Okay, all federal programs and most states. California is the least friendly because it will not let you file your subspecialist waiver application until July 1st. That would mean usually July 1st of the year you finish. All right, so basically all. Um, if you have any in mind, put it up there and I'll try to be, if you can all be state specific, that'll help me help you. Uh, what is an H-1B cap exempt employer? I knew somebody was gonna ask that, okay. Uh, we cover that in all, the other two seminars, but I will cover it. A nonprofit or public university medical school is cap exempt, one. Two, any nonprofit entity affiliated with a qualifying university. The that would be that your employer trains medical students, allied healthcare workers, pharmacy students, doesn't have to be in your specialty, doesn't have to be medical students or residents, but we can help you ferret that out. Um, so you wanna make sure the third one is if you've been somehow counted against the cap in the last six years, you'll sort of be forever cap exempt. Uh, other ones are research institutions, which do primarily research. That probably doesn't help you all a lot. Um, if your employer is dying, dying, dying for you, uh, there are other arrangements. We've made arrangements with a community college. It can't be high schools or below. They have to be post-secondary institutions. Uh, we can have a part-time age to work for a cap-exempt entity, like uh, working at a, at a college uh, health center once in a while, and like that. So if they're really, they will only do that if they're super desperate for you, because they basically have to do two H's. They're literally almost spending $10,000 just in USCIS pile. If you really want you, they'll go find a school that needs a doctor to work in their health office, teaching a course at a college or university, one course is good. Caveat there, once you get your age, you can't stop your cap exempt. So you file the cap exempt age first for a part-time job, premium processing, that means two week 
adjudication. And then when that's approved, you file the full-time as a concurrent full-time application, which piggybacks off of that one. So I'm not gonna go into more detail about that. There are a lot of other nuances because I actually propose it often and it's seldom um, done. All right, let's go to the next question. Is PNIW only for Canadians? No, it's for absolutely everybody. That's an employment-based second preference immigrant visa petition where you are the petitioner, the self-petition, and you promise to work in medically underserved areas for at least five years. And if you're doing the waiver job, the three years you do in that, if it's an underserved area, count towards the five, so you would have two left, and you can do that at another place. So that's everybody. The only people who can't concurrently file a green card application are persons born in India and Canada. So all of you get that, except people born. You all can have the part one, the I-140 PNIW, but only those not born in India or China can have the concurrent uh, green card application and work permit and travel document during the three-year commitment. Next. Can we initially apply for Conrad 30 and then Delta waiver or Appalachian? Only if you withdraw the Conrad 30 or it's denied, you can't have two pending at the same time. Two meaning Conrad 30 and any of the federal interested government agencies. And every waiver application must have a statement under oath from you that you have not applied for another waiver, state or um, federal. So how does PNIW can be filed before finding a job? What happens if you file the PNIW then, then work in an area not underserved? That's probably a lengthy consultation. You can't file PNIW before you have a job because you must submit contractor contracts totaling five years. So you have to have a contract. You need not have started the employment. What happens if you file it and then work in an area not underserved? Well, that's kind of prickly. Uh, eventually, most people who have PNIWs because work from PNIW employment-based green card applications pending, eventually get their green cards through PERM or another way. So, um, except if they're for India or China because there's a long green card line. Next. If you marry an American, will it take me four years to be able to work on a green card? Um, if you're a J-1 and you're getting a federal or state interested government agency waiver, you must serve three years in an underserved area before being eligible to apply for a green card. And they're taking, so you're talking three years of the waiver job plus, and you can file it three years in one day your green card based on marriage to a U.S. citizen and they're not taking they're taking anywhere between six months to two years now it may change we hope it does it depends on our elections in November so tell all your American friends to vote uh next question how many do we no you, you skipped the next question we have 20 more okay uh it's 202 if you all can stay I can stay you can flip to a J2 EAD if your husband or wife is on her own 
J1, correct. But you're, you're supposed to leave the United States. Next question, I'm gonna talk fast here. So we're available for follow-up consultations if you wish. PNIW for a person born in India. I've completed, after completing five years of waiver job, PNIW, are you able to switch job to any organization afterwards, such as for-profit or private entity, all of that good stuff. Uh, and I'm assuming that along the way, our PNIW of Indian origin had a J-1 waiver. So an important point to keep in mind is once you are granted a federal or st state waiver, that federal or state interested government agency waiver, you own the waiver and it goes with you forever and always. So you finish your three years, hopefully, at the waiver job and then move on to anywhere, super for profit, super whatever. Yes, you may do that. However, remember, if your hardship or persecution waiver until you get a green card based on whatever basis, a green card work permit, you have to be in a cap exempt institution. That's only hardship and persecution. Next. Can we hire our own lawyer for waiver processing? Great question. You often are run into the thing we have our own lawyer. Let me just tell you one legal ethics things. The lawyer may think they're your employer's lawyer. You may think they are, but as a matter of law, they rep co-represent both of you. However, if you don't feel comfortable with the lawyer, I would suggest a consultation with another lawyer. You can ask that you want to have your own lawyer. You know an experienced lawyer, you trust the lawyer, they have lots of experience, and they may say, okay, we'll let you hire your own lawyer. It varies a lot. So, um, and you may get the feeling the employer, the employer's lawyer is on their side. Um, and I can assure you that I hope that none of our clients ever think that um, because we try to be very open and fair about every issue. Oh, I love the next question. Is Puerto Rico part of the Conrad 30? Yes, and they never use their waivers. So is Guam. Why do I say Guam? It's way out there in the Pacific. However, it's three hours from the Philippines. So that is very attractive to Filipino physicians. There's also this weird piece of land called the Northern Mariana Islands. And you'll see on your H petitions and all other about things about Mariana Islands. It was added as being eligible for waivers a couple years ago. That also would be most attractive to people from Asia, Philippines, Taiwan, China. Actually, I don't know how far China is from Guam. I just know it's three hours to Manila and a lot of Filipino doctor, doctors like to go there. Next, can any hospital apply for a flex spot? Does the state decide which hospital gets flex slots, assuming both have underserved? Population. Uh, yes, the state a hospital can apply, absolutely, and they do apply, absolutely. Many academic centers get slots reserved for them. Uh, and so, yes, any hospital can apply. You've got to have the, the hospital has to be willing to submit documentation that they serve the poor, the people that live in an underserved area. Next question. What is the waiver status for Hawaii? Wide, wide open. For some reason, they can never get enough people to go to paradise. 
thoughts on SCRC waiver program? I don't know what SCRC is. is that South, could that person expand on that? I'll go to the next question. Don't know which waiver. Can you apply to states that have leftover spots from this year? Answered yes. Hi, Sheila. Uh, I, I'm a physician and will do a fellowship for one year in VA hospital and will be doing research on veterans. Will I be able to apply via interested government agency? And my husband is a green card holder. Um, if the VA will sponsor you, yes. Um, they probably won't even open the process before December because their headquarters tells them they can't. If your husband's a green card holder, you don't say what country for, you might want to look at a hardship waiver. Oh, Pakistan has a very good chance for hardship waivers, by the way. I named Syria, Ukraine, Iran, of course. Uh, I have TPS with pending hardship. Should I apply for H-1B when my hardship waiver is approved? I have my J-1 extended till November. Um, November 22 to take the boards. Do my option change? I'd start. Now you should start working with your TPS EAD and then just go directly for the green card if the employer is willing and they should be willing to. As long as they don't think you'll leave as soon as you get your green card. Okay, next question. What's the probability of O1 getting rejected despite a strong profile? Which countries currently have slots open for getting great for getting O1 visa appointments? Okay, probability of being rejected. Both O1s and EB1 extraordinary ability are 100% subjective applications. So you want to address your your pitch to the person who will be adjudicating your O1 or your EB1 O1 would be in Vermont. So uh, we don't know the way we do all ones is we have an architecture, we have questionnaires, we develop your case to see where it falls, to see if you can get them. They are fairly generous with O1 visas for physicians. So if you were in another occupation with a similar resume, you might get rejected. Uh, current countries have slots. Uh, I have to know what country you're from. Uh, Mexico is open and is suggested venue for physicians. Uh, don't tell all your friends that or you won't be able to get an appointment. Next question. If you have a DS 2019 for boards that has been approved and started and you want to go back to another J1 with the same hospital, but a different track, does ECFMG usually approve it? That is a different question and you may want to speak with me privately you can call ecfmg and ask them anonymously if that's a problem uh, if you've got an extension for the boards and you have a waiver or you want to go back to a j1 there may be a way to do it but ecfmg you may have noticed has tightened up in years they will give you pretty much a preliminary opinion uh, if you need to talk to the, you know, the bosses at ECFMG, uh, you might want to write to Irene Anthony. It's uh, you put it in the chat box quickly. I Anthony at ECFMG.org. It's Irene Anthony at ECF at 
No, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. There it is. You're just sending it to Sheila. You're going to yeah, send it to everyone. Okay, great. Um, they have gotten very strange about who they will sponsor. Oh, that's because Go ahead. Southeast Crescent Regional Commission. Uh, Southeast Crescent. No, uh, they don't have a program yet, but um, certainly. Um, and we've been trying to get one with the Mexican Border Commission, the Canadian Border Commission, and I don't know that anybody's working on Southeast, but I'll check and get back to you. But um, if you've heard of a program, let me know. Just send me an email. Next question. Oh, somebody, go ahead. I have to hop off, but wanted to, oh, thank me. Okay, great. Thanks, Brianna. Uh, New Jersey has several open slots, general and flex. Okay, they welcome everybody. Okay, I think I said that, but they are very user-friendly, paperwork heavy a little bit, but um, they still have waivers. So go get your job in New Jersey, flex or otherwise. Next. Oh, I get this question all the time. Great question. Can I work on PNIW at an institution with a satellite site that sees underserved population and there's a minimum? Yes, 40 hours per week in a medically underserved area. There is some information from our group, which is the International Medical Graduate Task Force, uh, that somebody has been able to piece together part-time like if you do two years, 20 hours a week, can that equal one year full-time? There was a decision several years ago that you can't, but I think people are reporting that you can if you want to try. All you lose is your legal fee and your filing fee. Next question, please. New Jersey never fills their slots. They have plenty left. We encourage you. Um, they just became a viable program a couple of years ago with the great director and they really want to help. Uh, as I said, they're paperwork heavy, um, so a lot of time, but yes. How can we schedule a personal consultation? You can email Corey at this address or call him at. Next question. It's Cobra. It's spelled Cobra. Your COBRA is out of my, my realm. I assume somebody's asking that uh, because they got an extension on their J-1 uh, to take the boards and they worried about insurance. I would put that up on the Facebook page, J-1 position Facebook page. I doubt if it's necessary. There's, there's, some, there's some kinks in there, so I don't want to answer that. Actually, uh, actually a good pin. I don't want to keep referring you to ECFMG, but they know that because all exchange programs have a requirement that they insure you from the point of departure in your home country to the point of return. And uh, I would call them about that. They they should know that because you're not you're not leaving. It looks like so. What happens in the interim period when you have J status but aren't working? Next question. Is there a nationwide cutoff for HIPSA score or is it state dependent? 
There's no nationwide cutoff, but for an HHS primary care waiver or hospitalist waiver, the work site must have a IPSA score of seven or greater. Corey, put the HIPSA, just Google HIPSA fine, but HIPSA fine by address. Yeah. Well, we put it, the website is on the slides, but it's a long one. Just Google HIPSA find by address. No, no, just type it in there. HIPSA find by address. Yes. Okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. So that will tell you HHS is the federal agency. Next question Is Missouri a good state for specialists? I'm thinking of accepting a job there. Well, a lot of it is covered by the Delta Regional Authority. They will accept. They do prioritize time primary care. I'm not sure if they will do subspecialists. I think it was on the list that they don't do. Okay, it's 216. One more question, and then sadly, I have to tell you all goodbye for today. I hope to hear from all of you. And that was the last question. Thank you all for attending. And uh, we look forward to working with you, helping you, advising you along the way. Can I just have one last word? A lot of people end up in jobs, taking jobs, and hating them after they get there. Therefore, please, if you listen to me, be careful in your selection. We've been doing waivers since 1987. And we, by now we're familiar with most or all states and the employers in who's good, who's bad. Uh, and you've got to do your due diligence because it's very frightening to have to get out of a waiver. You have to show extenuating circumstances and there's very little precedent on what is and what is uh, acceptable. So please fall in love. If you're not in love with your job, before you take it, fall in love with it immediately. Try not to think of it as a three-year prison sentence because that will determine how you are at your job and in your community. I'm going to be posting top 10 tips on our website for finding and keeping your waiver job. Keeping is very important. You talk to your colleagues who are miserable in their jobs, ask them why. And then you be careful of those things. But at any given time, I have four or five positions who were we're working on getting them out of their contract uh, when things aren't going well with the employer so that they can transfer to another waiver employer. And by the way, if you transfer to another waiver employer, it can be in any state at all in an underserved area if your first waiver is, is, was underserved and you don't need another waiver. You need an H-1B and that's it. And a, good, and, a, and a good extenuating circumstances package. And again, thank you all for attending. We hope to be in person in your city soon. We'll keep you posted. It is ever so wonderful to have you on Zoom, but fabulous to meet you in person. Thank you so much for attending. Bye, everybody.